Today will be more introductory in nature as we, we look at the background of the book and a little bit of why we're talking about it and the approach that we're talking about. Um, but let's start with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Father, I, I pray that you would be with our discussion in the next few weeks. May we search your word. Search your word for um, discernment and may we... Um, just be able to, to come to a deeper understanding of theology and your word and what you would have for us, Lord God. Bless our time together in your name. Amen. Well, for the next few weeks, I wanted to um, take some time and have a discussion about the book, The Shack. There are all kinds of different discussions happening about it. If you read online, there are, are so many different views of the book and positive and negative and people getting angry at each other and people yelling at each other and throwing things and so that's our goal just kidding <laughs> as we talk about love <laughs> no that is not our goal but but rather to to take and, and look at the book and look at some of the assertions being made by people that have read the book how people are taking it and and how should we take a book like this how should we approach it um, and Paul just has some wonderful things about the, the people at Berea that I think help us know how to approach a book like this. Um, let me start by saying, how many have, have heard of the book The Shack? Be, and besides this morning. Okay, so a lot of you. How many of you have actually read it? Okay, number of people. What are some things that, that you've heard about it? Not necessarily your opinion, but what are some things that you've heard in the discussion out in evangelical circles? Is there a discussion about it that you've heard? And, and again, I'm down here so you can talk. <laughs> okay, so you, you've heard that there's a whole discussion about the Trinity and the presentation of the Trinity. Okay? Okay, there, there's a discussion around that. Okay, what else have you heard? Okay, so different, different things there, and we'll, we'll look at some of that. What about on the positive? What are some things you've heard on the positive? I heard it was real good and well worth reading. Okay, good. What else? Life-changing. Life-changing, okay. Best book they've ever read in years. So we have all kinds of opinions right there, right? And I would bet that in a room this size, we have different opinions in this room. And so um, we're going we're gonna to talk about that in the next couple weeks and um, talk about, number one, how do we approach any book? And so, especially today, my discussion really is, is not so much about the shack, but how do we approach anything we read? How do we approach anything we watch, anything we listen to? And so there, there's concepts that, go, that transcend whether or not the shack is, is right, but... And then in the next couple of weeks, we'll look at some of the theology that's there and, and look at the Bible and, and see what, um, how that compares. Um, some things that, that I think the author did really well. Some things that I think we have to be careful of. And we'll look at both of those, hopefully with, with civility. No throwing of things at each other. And, and hopefully coming back to God's word as the source of, of truth. In your, in your handout there, I just have a couple of bullet points that um, 
we probably don't have a dream of getting through today, but we'll see what we can do. I wanted to start by giving you a summary of the book, because as I asked who's actually read it, only about 10, 20% of you have actually read the book. I have read the book, so you know. That's probably helpful to be able to, um, to, be able to talk about it. As I give a summary, this will be a little bit of a spoiler, but I, but I think that's okay to be... Uh, I don't think it matters. Yeah, not necessarily, because we'll give enough of a summary. She asked if it would be helpful to read it. Um, and I think, I think we'll be able to give enough of a summary. And in the weeks to come, I'll, I'll actually print excerpts from the book. So that way you can, you can see it. Um, but it's not something that you have to run out and change your whole schedule this week um, and read. Maybe by the end, you'll decide you want to. And so um, we'll go from there. So, when I say that this contains some spoilers, I, I hope I don't ruin the book for you if you haven't read it. Um, although, in everything I've heard, I'm probably not saying anything you wouldn't read in a review about the book. So I'm not ruining the book for you, I hope. Um, if, if you really don't like spoilers, you can cover your ears and sing or do, do something. Um, the story picks up a, a gentleman, Mac Phillips, or Mac, um, and. And this is a, a, a man who has a family, a wife and kids, and, and we pick up in the story where Mac is going through some, some really dark times. And he, the book calls it a great sadness. And he's dealing with a great sadness as, as we often deal with when tragedy hits. And if you've, if you've ever had tragedy in your life, and I would imagine most of you have, um, some tragedies are just really difficult to get past. And so we come across Mac in the middle of just a, a dark night of the soul or a, a deep tragedy. And in the beginning of the book, it begins to unfold what happened. And this is where it might be a little bit of a spoiler, but sorry. We, we go back four years earlier, and we find out what's happened. And, and Mac is on vacation with his family up in the mountains and with his kids. And his um, daughter, his young daughter, Missy, and I'm, I'm being really abbreviated, but his young daughter, Missy, ends up being abducted from camp while um, another one of his, or actually two of his other kids are out on a canoe and their, their canoe flips over and he's going out to rescue them and comes back and his daughter, Missy, has been abducted. Um, probably one of a parent's nightmares. Um, what if this happened to us? And throughout the, the, the story, it, it unfolds and we, we find evidence that, or Mac finds evidence, and the, the police find evidence that, that Missy ends up being murdered. And they actually never find the body, but in this shack, which is where the, where the book gets its name, um, in the shack we see that, that Missy, there's some blood stains, and they find some other evidence that all indications are that, that Missy is murdered. They, they find some other evidence that points that it was probably a serial killer, um, that had um, murdered several other young, young um, girls. And Mac is left struggling with the question that so many people ask, where is God in the middle of this? Where is God in the middle of this? And as he begins to try to, to struggle through this and make sense of this, how could, how could a loving God allow this? And, and we see him drifting away from faith, Drifting away from God, his wife 
is a, a strong believer, has an intimate relationship with God. In fact, her name for God is Papa. And um, Mac is pretty jealous of that, pretty envious of that. One day when, when his wife is, is away, um, Matt goes to the mailbox and, and finds a note that's to him from Papa. And it says, it, asks, it invites him to come to the shack for a weekend to meet there, the same shack where the evidence was found. And Mac struggles with that for a while and then ends up deciding to go ahead and do it and arranges things where he can go alone and he, he goes out to the shack, and, in the, and all that's about a third of the book. For the next two-thirds of the book, we find Mac, when he gets to the shack, he encounters God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit in human form. And um, the, the rest of the book are just conversations between Mac and God. Conversations um, about all kinds of things, about the tragedy, about who God is, about how the Trinity relates to each other conversations about the church, conversations um, that are, are wide and varied, conversations about forgiveness, about the sovereignty of God. And he has conversations with each one. Papa is portrayed as a large, matronly African-American woman, God the Father. Jesus is portrayed as a middle-aged Jew. And the Holy Spirit, named Sarayu, um, is, which is a um, Sanskrit word for wind, is portrayed as a woman of Asian descent that you can sort of see, just a little bit um, shimmering and um, off to the side. But, um, so he has conversations with these, and then at one point in the book has a conversation with a fourth person, which is wisdom personified. And in these conversations, um, God attempts to help Mac deal with this great sadness and come to a place of forgiveness and come to a place of dealing with these things. As, um, as you read the book, I think one of the author's main points is, is attempting to show that God wants relationship, and God wants to, to heal, and God wants to um, bring Mac into a, a real relationship with him, a real understanding of who he is, rather than um, keeping him in his great sadness. That's pretty much the story. There's a few details I've left out, so it's not completely spoiled. <laughs> um, but um, that's the story of where it goes. And, and the author has, has worked to present a view of God that would be in keeping with the love of God. And that is the, his primary goal is to talk about the love of God, and that is where his focus is, um, almost in, in exclusivity to, to any other aspects of God, because that's what he's, he's trying to, to get across. Um, the Shack is written by Paul Young, and, or William Paul Young, but um, in most of the interviews I've seen, it's been more Paul Young. And just a little bit about him, and um, he's, he's presented some of his background, and so I'll briefly share that, because I think it helps us understand um, why the book, why he wrote the book, why he's part of this. Um, he's a salesman from Oregon. You know those people that live in the Northwest. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but um, he's from Oregon, and um, he, he's been through a lot in his life. And, and as his story unfolds, we find that he, and this is true, this is his biography, so this is where the author is coming from. He was a, a son of missionaries in New Guinea, and 
went through a lot of trauma in New Guinea. He tells of sexual abuse by the tribe, and then um, when he was sent to missionary boarding school, further sexual abuse. And um, he, he, in his words, he says, I was terrorized, brutalized, and dehumanized. And so that's the, the early back background of, of where he was at. And, and then he went on to really struggle with how do you, do you put that in context. And he never really dealt with that, he says. And um, he, he later married. And he said this, I could appear to be the model Christian dad. I was the son of missionary parents, a Bible school graduate, a former seminary student. He was serving at his church in charge of the college group. And, um, but still had this background that he had never dealt with, a darkness that was, was keeping him from, from really relationship with God. It came out that um, he went through a dark time at that point, and his wife discovered that he was having an affair with his wife's best friend. And um, at that point, everything came out that he didn't have relationship with God, that he had never dealt with that. And... Um, in that dark time, he, he contemplated suicide. He didn't see any way out. And so when he speaks of a great sadness, he's speaking of um, things that he has felt. At that point, there became a, a seed of hope. Another friend came to him and said, you know, there's a seed of hope with God. There's a seed that you can, that you can um, renew things with God and restore that relationship, and God can help you out of that situation. And he, he writes, I came to understand how God has never abandoned me. I spoke to him more frankly. I didn't try to hide anymore. The conversations with Kim, his, his wife, stretched into some long talks about how God had reached me when I had completely bottomed out. And over the next 11 years, um, he and his wife and family were able to patch things up. And, and he worked on his relationship with them. He worked on his relationship with God. And um, one day as he's sharing this with his wife, his wife said, why don't you write down what you've learned as a gift for the kids? And so he began to write the shack, this novel, as a, a, a teaching tool for his kids to pass on what he had learned, what he had gone through, where God had brought him. And, and so he was writing this novel to try to graphically portray that for his children. Um, he, he had no intentions of publishing it publishing it at that time. In fact, they made copies at Office Depot, he said. So, um, and they made copies of this, and some friends got a hold of a copy and convinced him to publish it, and um, publishers wouldn't publish it, and so he and a friend published it on their own, and as you could say, the rest is, is history. Um, it took off, and people bought it, and then publishers picked it up, as often happens when something sells. And um, so it is now of an incredibly popular book. In a moment, I'll, I'll give some of the stats of that so we can sort of understand what's happening. As Paul Young describes his book, he says, the, the book is true, just not real, like a parable. I may not be exactly like the fictional main character, but what that man learns through the healing power of love and forgiveness, the liberation of the soul through transparency and grace, is a journey I know well. So that gives a little bit of a background of where, where he's coming from. Wrote this book for his kids, and then um, now it's a hugely popular book. 
um, some stats on the book, some information on the book. And today, like I said, is more background. Some of it is, is why even talk about the shack. And some of this information is, is I think, helpful. Um, Shaq was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Right now it's number two on the New York Times paperback trade fiction. Um, as of Friday, it was number 14 on Amazon.com, number eight on the USA Today um, bestseller list. It has been number one at times, as I mentioned, and it, it continues to be one of the best-selling Christian novels right now. Um, some have compared it to Pilgrim's Progress, as a work that is comparable to Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Um, some have said it's the greatest book after the Bible, and some have called it undiluted heresy. So that's, that's the range of, of where people have, have gone on that. Um, over the last three or four weeks, I have read hundreds of reviews, or hundreds of, of posts that people post on, on Amazon.com, and and on some of these sites that are interacting with each other and that are interacting with the book. And um, it's really fascinating to read the firestorm that the, the book has developed. There are people that attack it um, viciously. There are people that love it immensely. And then after they make their statements, they just go at each other. And um, it's, it's really sort of sad to see what has happened um, as people attempt to deal with the, the concepts in the book. Today, my goal is to sort of set a groundwork for how we evaluate the book, how we evaluate the content of the book. Because yelling and, and calling names is not how God would have us deal with anything. Um, giving a book carte blanche control over our theology is also not a way to deal with things. And as a people, we need to learn to become discerning, which is why the title that I have at the top is Reading with Discernment. And that applies to far more than the shack. That applies to everything we read. That applies to everything you hear. It applies to every sermon you hear. I pray that you are listening with discernment and checking everything I say and everything Fred says and everything Happy says with God's word. And so today, my, my hope is that we set a groundwork in the next 20 minutes that um, affirms where we find truth, why truth is important, why theology is important, and, and attempts to, to view media in general in that sense. The next section in your notes is, why is the book popular? Why is the book popular? As you hear the summary, why do you think it's popular? Scratches an itch. One of the, the, de, the great debates that I hear in this next generation is where is God when it hurts? Where is God when tragedy strikes? And, and we have a, another generation, just as virtually every generation before, we have a generation struggling with that concept. How do you resolve evil with an almighty God? And, and those are the subjects the book deals with. So absolutely, scratches, scratches where people are, are itching. That would be number three. <laughs> the problem of evil, where is God when it hurts? This is like family feud. <laughs> Michael. Controversy fuels the flame of popularity. Can you repeat that, please? Controversy fuels the flame of popularity. Controversy fuels the flame of popularity. 
oh, if people are loving it, I should read it. If people are hating it, I should read it. And if people are arguing about it, I really need to read it, right? Is that? Um, <laughs> which I guess is why I read it. Um, one of the reasons I read it and I'm dealing with it is because I started to hear the controversy and I started to hear the controversy within our own church and, and hear people going back and hearing both sides and it is such a popular book that I would guarantee most of you will be touched by it at some point in some way. A friend will read it or you will read it or someone will recommend it and so it's important for us to talk about even if it's uncomfortable at times but it's important for us to talk about. That is not one of my five but I like that one. Um, okay, it takes a tolerant, accepting view of God. Um, trying to see if that fits one of mine. That's sort of one B. <laughs> sort of one. Um, okay. And, and it does, and so that is very um, intriguing to people, especially people that are on the New York Times bestseller list, people that don't know God. That would be um, very important for them. Um, it, I can relate to this God because he's more like me. He's more human. Okay. I can relate to this God. He's more human. That's number one. People want to understand God and have him at our level. Um, we, we want an understandable God every generation has and I think that's one of the very appealing things and as I talk with people that's the number one thing that I hear I, I can understand God through the book and so that's I think one of the reasons it's so popular because people feel like they're understanding God better Cookie you had thank you okay I'm like that was that was five minutes ago <laughs> Okay. Why else is it so popular, do you think? Do you want me to throw, just throw out my other ones? People can relate to the author. A lot of people have gone through things. Um, and it does scratch where we itch on that issue. And that's, that's not, these aren't necessarily bad things. It's good to talk about why there's evil. It's good to talk about how God is present and evil, and um, that God never leaves us in difficult times. But um, number two that I had was um, our relationship-starved culture is desperate for a relationship with God, whether they know it or not. Um, one of my, my pet soapboxes is, as a culture, I think we're, we're growing relationally illiterate. And um, I know the youth have heard me talk about that a number of times where our conversations are, are, have dwindled down to 140 characters and um, back and forth. And not that that's a bad tool, but if that is our only tool for relationship, we're in deep trouble. And so what I'm seeing as, we, as, I, as I worked with youth for a long time, and I think Happy would concur with this, in the generation that's coming, we're really struggling with relationships because we feel like we're connected to a lot of people, but we don't go deep with anyone. And, and so there's, there's challenges there in that context where God has built into us a desire for him and a need for relationship with God that just accentuates um, a desire for relationship in a relationship-starved um, culture. 
Along with that is we want easy relationships. And so if we can find a book, any book, that really makes it simple for us, that's very appealing. Another reason that did not originate with me, but in my readings that, that really made a lot of sense, um, number four on your list, is that of missing fathers. Missing fathers. Um, in the book, God is portray portrayed as a matriarch specifically because there's so much baggage, God says, with being seen as a father. And that is appealing to people because, um, because of bad relationships with fathers, because of missing fathers. Last reason I think the book is popular, and this is one that I've heard often as well, is that people have been burned by the church. People have been burned by the church. You may say, well, what does that have to do with anything? The book actually talks about that a lot. It's an underlying current. And so that resonates with people that have been hurt by a church, controlled by a church, or burned by a church. And that's, that's a theme that keeps coming back up in my discussions with people about the book. So hopefully that gives a little bit of background. All of that for the first half of the first page. We're just cruising, aren't we? So now I want to move into just some, some ways of, of looking at media that would apply to the shack, would apply to, like I said, any other, other book that we read. The question that I have in your, your handout is, it's just fiction, right? Because one of the, especially in the reviews, one of the things that is often said, well, it's, it's, it's a piece of fiction, and so please don't assess any of the truth in it, because it's, it's, it's a novel. And so I want to talk about that, because yes, fiction has a, has a place, and we have to view it as fiction, and, and we have to, to view it in, the, in that context, but does fiction matter? Do, does it matter what is said in fiction? Jesus used a lot of fiction to teach truth. Um, he used parables all the time. In fact, he often taught that way, and, and he taught it because he knew that story is a powerful tool. Story is a powerful tool that, that gets a point home that maybe we wouldn't normally understand or wouldn't normally um, take in. It's one of the reasons why we use illustrations in sermons. Um, it, because story helps drive a point home. Most of the stories that we use in, in sermons are, are uh, well, not the ones of Mark, those are true, but many of them are fictional. And even the story today of the Good Samaritan. That was a fictional story that God was using to teach theological truths. And so, it's just fiction, right, is, is something that we have to be careful of. Um, as a parent, if you let your, your child watch a lot of TV, and the stats on TV right now about violence and sex on TV are, are disturbing to say the least, and hopefully you're watching what your kids are watching, but what if your child said, well, it's it's just a story, would you still let them watch it? No, and parents, video games as well. Just, it's just a game, right? But no, we know as parents that, that it's not just a game, that it, it, is, it is teaching a truth. Um, fiction can exert a great deal of influence on how we see the world, both positively and negatively. 
Um, you have parables, like I said. Pilgrim's Progress is a, a piece of fiction that has greatly shaped many people's view of the, the Christian walk. Um, C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe that, that works to bring in a variety of Christian um, concepts and the idea of redemption in, in a powerful, vivid way. And so I, I would argue that it is right to, to critique fiction that we do need to engage our minds. And that's really what this whole series is about, is we need to engage our minds on anything we read or see or hear. Because as soon as we detach our brains and just turn off the little, little base there and just take in what we're seeing, I don't care whether it's good or bad, that is not a healthy way to approach media. Imagine, and I, and I love this, this idea, imagine if I offered to write a book about your parents. Okay, Mary, can I use you? Let's say I'm, I'm going to write a book about your parents, and I get your permission, and let's just pretend I'm an author so it'll actually sell and go somewhere. And, and I offer to write this book, and, but it's going to be fiction, and I tell you that, but I'd like your parents to play the starring role. And um, so you tell me a lot about your parents, and I know your parents, and so we write this book, and, and you get the book back, and you read it, and you are just in tears. Because the, the parents in this book are nothing like your parents. Maybe I have, I'm berating them in there, and maybe I have them you know, hitting each other or doing all these things. Would you be upset? Yes. <laughs> but it's just fiction. <laughs> but it's your parents. And, and one of the points we have to understand is when we deal with fiction that deals with real people, it always is teaching something about that person. And whether it's our parents or whether it's anything else, and so all this just serves as a backdrop to make sure we are reading with our minds engaged. Um, it is theology. Even though it's fiction, it is teaching, and it is forming our view. Um, the, the, the tack that Paul Young takes is actually to make an assertion, and then um, a standard rebuttal, and then the rebuttal to that rebuttal, a pretty classic form of, of teaching concepts. And he himself said this is intended to teach his kids. And so it is, it is a piece of fiction, but it was intended to teach. And we need to keep that in mind as we, we look through it. And, it teaches some really good things, and we need to evaluate some other things that it teaches with Scripture and say, is that true with Scripture? What concerns me more is how people are taking it, if that makes sense. Um, I, I don't think the author was, in fact, I know he wasn't, he wasn't intending to write a theological treatise. But the thing is, is when you put something in print, it's out there, and people begin to take it a lot of different ways. And I put some of the quotes that are just a smattering. And the quotes taking it this way are probably about five to one, viewing it as theology, viewing it as teaching, versus viewing it um, in light of, well, we need to evaluate everything. And one reviewer, I was amazed by Young's insight and theology. I think it helped me to articulate my own thoughts about God. And so they're taking it as theology. Um, another reviewer, um, wish I could take back all the years in seminary, the years the locust ate. 
Systematic theology was never this good. This is what people are writing. This is how people are, are, are taking the, the story, the, the work of fiction. Furthermore, I found his treatment of the Trinity to be enlightening and actually life-altering. That was a different reviewer. Um, and so I just put a, a few little quotes. Um, again, these are, this is not the author. That makes sense? These are, these are how people are taking the work of the author, which tells me that people aren't, aren't thinking things through. Um, what is the source of theology? God's word. That is the final source of the... I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll, we'll get there. Um, <laughs> because that... Um, yeah, that's, that's, where, that's where we have to go with this. Um, a couple of verses there. Um, I don't remember if I put them on your handout, but the idea of discernment can never leave us, whether it's fiction, whether it's nonfiction, whether it's a movie, whether it's music... Whatever it is, the, the idea of discernment cannot leave us. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21, test everything. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. So our instructions from God's word, check everything out. Is this true? Is this not true? Hold on to what's true. Get away from what's not. Ephesians 5 8 to 10, live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. So we need to be discerning. Um, I threw in one quote from the book. This is the only quote in your handout today. Um, This is in the early part where... um, Mac is talking with his daughter Missy before she's kidnapped, and they're talking about the, the Indian legend of Multnomah Falls. Anyone ever been to Multnomah Falls? Incredible place. You've got to hike to the top. But um, talking about the Indian legend of Multnomah Fall, Falls where um, the, the chieftain, to appease the great spirit, um, had to have his daughter or his daughter volunteered, I forget which, jump off the falls to, to cure a sickness that was going um, through the, the tribe. And the daughter and the the dad are talking together, and Missy was next to ask, it says, Is the great spirit another name for God? You know, Jesus' papa. Max smiled in the dark. Obviously, Nan's nightly prayers were having an effect. I I would suppose so. It's a good name for God because he is a spirit and he is great. So as, as you read any quote, as you read something like that, you should be asking, is this true, is this not true? Um, is God the Father the same as Indian tribe gods? And, and, and you begin to ask things like that, and that's just one little quote. Please understand that, that this whole section where he's talking to his daughter um, isn't about that. But it, it's little things like that in anything we read that we need to be aware of and just be conscious of because every author is coming from a particular point of view. Um, and so... We need to be just aware of that and evaluating that. And sometimes, as authors, you don't even intend something to be taken as a point of view. But it may come out that way as we read it. And so we should keep our brains engaged. Um, the next point I have on your, your handout is the arts. And this is, again, just a general one. One of the things about the arts is that they bypass discernment in our, in our brains, usually. When, when something happens with the arts, it speaks to the soul rather than to the mind. 
Um, by and large, on Sunday morning, when we're talking about God's Word and studying God's Word, we're talking to the mind and intellectually processing it. Um, but when we sing, when we worship, we see in Scripture that that goes right to the soul. It goes right to the soul in a way that is so different and so precious and so meaningful. But that's the way all of the arts work. And so we just need to be, be aware of that. Arts tend to speak to the soul, good and bad. And so we need to say, okay, what is good about this? What do I need to be careful that comes into my soul? Because every work by man probably has some good things and probably has some bad things. And, and we need to be aware of that and take into our soul what is consistent with Scripture. Um, I would say the same thing about entertainment. It's amazing what we will watch and what we will listen to that we normally would abhor because it has bypassed our discerning spirit. It's the arts that have, have come in. One of the bloggers hit on that without knowing it. Um, they said, I liked the shack as it snuck around the back door of my conscious mind to teach me again what I already knew from Scripture. God is especially fond of me. And... I don't have a problem with saying that God loves us. We talked about that this morning. But again, the idea that we're letting things sneak around behind our, our conscious mind, that is something that we need to be aware of and be, be careful of as we blaze through. We're doing okay, I think. Um, Next, next point, and we'll just keep going. What is the foundation of truth? And, and I would bet that all of you would say, or most of you would say, well, God's word. And that is absolutely true, but I wanted to put some verses in there that make sure that we know that that's true. The foundation of any truth has to be God's word. Everything we hear, everything we evaluate, we come back to scripture because scripture is the only absolute form of truth. And I know in a relativistic culture that is, that is difficult to accept, but scripture is absolute truth. And so it is the measuring stick by which all things are to be measured. We see that in 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the Hebrews passage, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you about the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Speaking of a people that had not matured in, in biblical literacy and what they knew about God. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. What is the constant use of? God's word. Who by constant use of God's word have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. You can read the, the John 17, 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now this may seem obvious to us, but it stands in the face of current culture. Current culture evaluates truth a number of different ways. Current culture would evaluate truth by what I can understand, by what relates to me, by what feels right to me. And so 
the danger is because we all live in current culture and we all are influenced by current culture to some degree and we need to be aware of that. Um, as we approach any book, it's not enough to say that I understood it better so it must be true. Truth comes from God's word. And so understanding it better may help us clarify what the author's point of view is, but then we go back to God's word and say, is that point of view true? Does that make sense? We always come back to the word of God. Um, how it feels. Whereas that's a powerful thing, and that is one of the, the powers of the arts, and can be used in great ways, we have to be careful that that does not become our definition of truth. Um, truth is from God's word. Um, in, in a postmodern society that the, we are in, experience is everything. But I would challenge you that that can't be everything because our experience is limited and God's word is infinite truth. An example of that, is it, the, is it theologically sound? Another comment that was online. Hmm. What I know is that it spoke to me in profound ways. And um, so there was a, a lot of comments like that, and I understand where he's, he's going, and part of discerning is we may be able to discern that something isn't theologically sound, but we may be able to see a bigger picture and glean what is good out of that. But we have to be careful. 2 Peter 3.16. Actually, I have the psalm passage, right? One of the things that we need to understand is part of who God is is we cannot comprehend him. We can try, we can study, but if we get to a point where we understand God, then we don't know God. Is that fair enough to say? Now, we can understand things about God, and we should be striving for that, but if we feel like we have a handle on who God is, um, Psalm 145.3, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. 2 Peter 3.16. Peter's talking about Paul's writing, sort of humorous. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. And he's dealing with some, some specific heresy there. But the point is, is that it's hard to understand. Um, Peter had a hard time understanding Paul's writings. Peter walked with Jesus. I just laugh when I read that verse. We are out of time. So next, next week, I'd like to continue this. And we'll, we'll do the last point next week um, on does theology matter? Does theology matter in life, or is it just simply an academic exercise? And I'd, I'm going to throw that question out to you and, and have you answer that. Um, as you can see, today was more foundational, groundwork for any media, groundwork for anything we evaluate. What I would ask is this. Over the next two weeks, hopefully we'll get through this in two more weeks, Everyone's saying it won't happen, but um, over the next two weeks, can we approach the material with a view of looking at it from God's word? Looking at what may be true about it, 
looking at it from, well, what may be not true, what may be coming across a different way. Can we look at it that way without throwing things at each other? And I think we can, because there, there, are, there are some good things the author was trying to do, and um, he's also coming from some theological positions that we would not support, but they're very, actually pretty well-defined theological positions. And so we'd like to look at those things, and um, I think in doing so, deepen our own understanding of God, and our own understanding of who God is, and how he wants to relate with us. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, our Father, I pray that you would... Um, Give us discerning spirits. Not just for the shack, but for everything we read and watch and see. Lord, discerning spirits even for coming to church and hearing. I pray that people would go back even today and search your word. And maybe it's things that they don't think they like what I said. But I pray that they would search your word. Or maybe people that agree, I pray that they would search your word. May we be a people that are devoted to the letters you have given us and elevate that above all else. In your name, amen.